God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to read and reread and listen afresh to a story that maybe we've heard or we've heard recited, but to come to it with fresh eyes and to be moved and spoken to by your spirit. What an incredible privilege that is. I pray this morning that as we look at Matthew 2, we would hear your voice, that my voice, that my thoughts, my plans, the things I put into my notes, those things would fade away and that your voice would be at the forefront. We are desperate to hear from you. God, we pray that you would speak in this place, that we would hear you, that we would turn, that you would heal us, that you would be glorified as we worship you through the study of what you've said to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat right where you're at. Well, we are continuing in a little, kind of a short series around Christmas. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, the series is called Unto Us. We've been talking about the fact that God came to us in the incarnation, in the coming of Christ, God comes to mankind in all that we are, right? We come from all different places, all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different experiences, and even different responses to Jesus. And regardless of who you are or where you come from or what your response is to the coming of Christ, the reality is that he still came unto you and unto me, no matter who we are. The first week we were in this series, we looked at uh, Simeon, a man who was anxious and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. An old man, in fact, who, uh, when he finally held the baby in his arms, if you were part of that session, when he finally held the baby, remember he declared, that's it, I can die, right? I'm ready to go. That's all I wanted to do was to hold the Messiah in my arms. The second week we were in the series, we talked not about someone uh, or people who were anticipating the Messiah, but rather people who were distracted. And we looked at John 1 and the idea that light has come into the world. And life was in Christ that was the light of mankind, and yet the world didn't see it and didn't know it. That Jesus came to his own and we didn't receive him. The world didn't recognize what they had in Christ. And so for many people, there was a sense of being distracted at Christmas. This week we're talking about being inconvenienced. You know, it's funny, in the walk through Bethlehem thing, I've, I've been a shepherd guide, you know, a couple of the nights, so I'm in a costume and whatever. And there are all kinds of characters. If you went through the walk through Bethlehem, you've seen some of this already, but one of the things that struck me is the, uh, the Roman soldiers at the beginning. You know, every night the kids are always a little bit scared of the Roman soldiers because they're, they're kind of shouty and they're sort of bossy and they're kind of mean and they're wearing, you know, they're men, but they're wearing short skirts, which is kind of troubling, you know? And, uh, Anyway, I was struck by one of the lines. There's one of the soldiers, and it's not even in the script, it's kind of an aside, but one of the soldiers every night as the crowd goes past, you know, you got a crowd of like 30 or 40 people making their way through, and one of the Roman soldiers will go, he, he stomps his spear on the ground and he goes, more people, more trouble, right? And I thought, you know, that's interesting, like, that's kind of how I feel during Christmas when I go to the mall, right? I feel a little bit like a Roman soldier who's inconvenienced by the crowds and all the hullabaloo and all the wrapping and the having to get things shipped on time and trying to find the best deals. There's a lot that sort of comes around Christmas that is an inconvenience. And when we think about the Romans in particular, they were charged with sort of maintaining the peace in Israel that actively wanted them gone. The people of Israel were waiting for the Messiah to come to chase them out of town, right? And so they're constantly working with people, crowds of people who hated them, resented their presence, resented their leadership, and the coming of a new king wouldn't have been something that they would have anticipated or even something they would have been distracted from, but rather something that would have been very inconvenient to the job they were trying to do. I also think about the innkeeper. You know, the, the Bible doesn't actually tell us a lot about the innkeeper. That's sort of a, that's a character that's kind of been embellished over the years. We know that Joseph and Mary were turned away from the inn, but we don't know much about the innkeeper. But 
In our play, uh, in the walk through Bethlehem sort of immersive thing, it's interesting when you come around the corner to the well and the innkeeper's there, one of the things he says to his family is he's like, you know, you're so, you're so anxious to go and see this baby and you want to go and see this child, but there's work to be done here. There's money to be made. And if you run off and start paying attention to this Christ child, then I'm the one that's going to have to do all the sweeping and I need somebody to help me out around here. You know, it's true that in the pursuit of Jesus, we can sometimes become an inconvenience to other people. Our faith can become an inconvenience. And so in that, when Jesus comes, it is an inconvenience to some. They look at Jesus and they see him as a hassle. They look at the followers of Christ and they see us as an obstacle to be overcome. But I think the greatest example of inconvenience at Christmas that we see in the Bible is in the person of King Herod. We see part of King Herod's story revealed here in Matthew chapter 2. And it's, it's an interesting text for us to take this morning because I'll tell you, it is just barely a Christmas story, right? It just, it's like not really a Christmas story at all because understandably this story in Matthew 2 probably took place some two years after the birth of Jesus. I know sometimes you see the nativity sets and there's the shepherds on one side and the wise men on the other, but that's not actually a very accurate timeline. We believe from what we see in Matthew chapter two that it's likely the star that announced the arrival of the coming of Christ, that it appeared some two years before they actually arrive at this house where they're able to worship the Christ child. And we think that because when Herod inquires of them about the time the star appeared, and then later, you'll see in Matthew 2.16, later when Herod announces a decree to have all of the male children in, in Jerusalem and in Israel slaughtered, he does so for male children that are two years and younger. So we take that timeline and we go, well, it's likely that, that they're arriving, the, the shepherds, or excuse me, the wise men or the magi are arriving on the scene some two years after his birth. He's a toddler at that point, but we don't know for sure. We don't know that there's... There are actually a lot of things in this story we don't know. We don't know exactly where they come from. It says the east, but that could mean a lot of different things. There are theologians who've said, well, it's likely that that these men traveled on this journey because they understood the scriptures. They understood the prophecies like we see in Numbers 27 or we see in Isaiah 60. And they would have learned those things, maybe, potentially, having been handed down from those that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, would have handed those things to initially because of his faithfulness In the east, many years later, there are those who are still studying the Hebrew prophecies and are watching for a star. But we don't know exactly where they come from. We don't know exactly how long they traveled. We don't know what their names are, despite what you may have heard. And we certainly can't say that there were three of them, right? There are people who've sort of assumed, and there are songs that have been written, you know, we three kings or whatever. They write that because there are three gifts. So they say, oh, gold and frankincense and myrrh, there must have been three of them. But during this time period, it would have been actually very unsafe to travel with expensive gifts in a band of three. It's far more likely that these guys were wealthy and that they traveled. It could have been an entourage with as many as 300 people in it. We don't know. We don't know how many there were. We don't know what their names were. We don't know where they came from. We don't don't know exactly what scriptures they were looking at. We don't know exactly what the star was. There are all kinds of things in this text that we don't know. But here's what we know. We know that God came to them and he woke them up and he led them and they followed. There are a lot of things in your life and in my life that I don't know. There's lots of things I haven't figured out. There are a lot of things around the corner that I am unsure of and things that I haven't quite discerned or determined in my own power. But I'll tell you what I'm responsible for is to live and to be faithful, to be obedient to God in the things that I do know. They saw a light and they followed it. That's what we know about them. 
And there are a lot of things here that are really interesting. But right here at the beginning, we sort of get a little bit of the climate they're coming into. It says in verse 1 of Matthew 2, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Matthew's trying to give us a warning sign. He's trying to tell us a little bit about the situation. When he says, in the days of Herod the king, anybody who read this originally would go, uh, those were not good days, right? When he says, in the days of Herod the king, he's trying to say something to us about the culture and the time frame in which the Magi traveled. Because Herod was an evil, wicked tyrant, He was a puppet king that had been set up by the Roman Empire to basically control the Israelites, but he was resented by them because he was their, he was Roman's, Rome's puppet, and he was sort of looked upon with disdain by the Romans because he wasn't a true king. He was just a a symbol. But he was willing to sort of exist in that place as long as he could hold on to his money and as long as he could hold on to his power and as long as he could hold on to his palace and all of the things that he had, and he was desperate not to lose those. But we know that Herod was a wicked man. We know uh, from the history books that Herod actually killed members of his own family who he thought would be a threat to his kingdom, to his kingship. We know from other historical accounts that when Herod got, when, when he got sick, and by the way, when this story occurs, Herod is already sick. He will die shortly after these things occur. But we know that at the death of Herod, Herod actually had a lot of influential people from Jerusalem gathered together and imprisoned, and he made a decree that when he died, the soldiers were supposed to slaughter those influential people because he said, when I die, I want the people of Jerusalem to weep, and I know none of them will weep for me. That's the kind of man we're talking about. He was an evil man. He was a murderous, villainous, vile, selfish man. So it says, after Jesus was born, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, and wise men's a tricky word too, sorry, I don't want to deviate too much, but um, when we talk about wise men, the word that's translated wise men in our English Bibles is the word magi in Greek. Um, Magi, what we're talking about when we talk about magi, we're talking about fortune tellers. We're talking about soothsayers. We're talking about astrologers slash astronomer. These are people who basically were forbidden in the Old Testament, Right? These are not Hebrews. They're not necessarily God-following people. These are pagans who look to the stars and follow the signs and are trying to figure out these prophecies who come quite a distance. They're, they're magi. They're magi. These are the same people that we read about in Daniel. Remember when the king in, in, uh, in Daniel is trying to have his dream interpreted? And he calls the magicians and the wise men and the enchanters and the soothsayers and none of them have the ability to tell the king what he wants to know? Same kind of people. Soothsayers and enchanters, astrologers. That's who we're talking about here. It says these wise men, these magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose in the east and have come to worship him. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let me just say, this is a, this is a pretty dangerous thing to say. This is a pretty dangerous thing to say to a guy like King Herod who is a murderer, who is a tyrant, and who has self-styled himself the king of the Jews. We know from the history books that that's one of the titles he used for himself. So imagine this. Here come these magi. It may have been as many as 300. They come into the king's court. They get an audience with the king, and they say, hey, we're here looking for the king of the Jews, the new king of the Jews, right? This is the last thing you want to say to the current king of the Jews, right? Because he doesn't want there to be a new king of the Jews, They're obviously not talking about his kids because he's killed them, right? And so we see Herod then, and he understood the prophecies because Herod turns to his his, uh, 
chief priests and his scribes, and he says to them, tell me where the Christ is to be born. There is no question that Herod understands who they're looking for. They say, we want to know where the king of the Jews can be found, and he turns to his men. Look at what it says in 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He's troubled. Yeah, no duh. He's troubled because he's a guy who's trying to hold on to his wealth and he's trying to hold on to his power. He's trying to hold on to his position and he doesn't want to turn those things loose. He doesn't want there to be another king because he wants to be the king. And that's relevant because I would guess that there are many of you and and myself at times who kind of resist the idea of of Jesus Christ as the king of our lives, right? Why? Because that's an inconvenience. It's inconvenient for Jesus to be the king because we want to be the king, because we want to sit on the throne, and any threat to our authority or our power or our preservation becomes inconvenient. Herod doesn't like the idea. He's troubled, and it doesn't just say Herod's troubled. It says all of Jerusalem is troubled. Well, there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, if we've got, you know, if we've just got three magi, I doubt the three magi have the ability to trouble all of Jerusalem. But if we've got a whole entourage of magi who travel into Jerusalem looking for the new king, and the people in Jerusalem know what the, what the current king is like, then they're troubled because they think this isn't going to end well for them or for us. It says he's troubled. Why? Why is he troubled? Herod is troubled because he wants to hold on to what he has. Jesus is a threat to his plans, to his money, to his power, his pride, and his position. I don't know if you've ever felt kind of threatened. If you've ever felt threatened before? When, uh, when my kids were really, when Jack and Hank, my older kids, when they were little, like three and four, maybe two and three, um, they had been over to a friend's house and uh, they, they got to play with their friend's new, brand new little kitty cat, right? Cute little kitty cat. And they came home and they said, we got to play with a kitty today and we really need to get a kitty. And mommy and daddy, can we please get a kitty cat for our house? And, and my wife says, uh, well, no, we, we can't get a kitty cat because we live at Hume Lake and at Hume Lake, there's no pets in people's homes. So no, we can't get a cat. And they were like, but someday when we don't live at Hume Lake, can we get a kitty cat then? Can we get a kitty cat when we move? And, uh, and my wife says, well, the problem is that even if we moved away from Hume, daddy is allergic. I'm like deathly allergic to cats, right? If I get around a cat, then my throat closes up and eventually I die, right? I mean, I, I haven't tested that, but I think that's sort of where it goes, right? So my wife says to my little children, she says, no, we, we can't ever get a cat because daddy gets really sick. He's allergic and it would make, it could kill him. He'd have to go to the hospital. And so my boys thought about it for a second and they said, well, but when we grow up, we'll be able to have a kitty cat at our own house, right? And my wife says, well, you can have a kitty cat at your own house, but if you do, then mommy and daddy won't be able to come and visit you. And they thought about it a little bit longer and then Jack goes, but you'll be able to come, right, mommy? <laughs> right? Like he's, he's doing the math here and he's going, okay, we really want a kitty, and, but we don't want to lose dad and mom, but if we could have a kitty and mom... Well, we'd be willing to make the sacrifice, right? That seems, I mean, we can always just sort of wave at dad from inside the house, right? And I just remember thinking like kitty cats, you know, like my nemesis threatening my, my uh, life with my children. I don't know if you've ever felt that, that feeling of sort of being disjointed or like somebody was sort of dismissing you. It's not a great feeling. Herod is troubled. Jesus is an inconvenience. The very, by the way, the definition of convenient, just so we're clear, something that is convenient as described in the dictionary is something that fits in well with a person's needs, activities, and plans. 
The new Christ child does not do that in the life of Herod. Something else, second definition, convenient, involving little trouble or effort. Jesus isn't going to be that for him. Something that's convenient is something that's situated so as to allow easy access, right? Herod's not even exactly sure where this Christ child is. There's nothing convenient about the arrival of Jesus. It's very inconvenient. But what I find even more troubling than Herod's sort of murderous response, Herod ultimately will will, uh, put out a decree that all of the male children under two should be killed. What I find even more troubling than that is the response of the chief priests and the scribes. Think about that for a second. Herod looks at the chief priests of Israel and the scribes, the one that served the king, And he says, hey, can you tell me where the Christ child will be born? And just off the top of their heads, right, they quote out of Micah. They know. They know the answer to the question because they are chief priests and scribes. King Herod says, where will the baby be born? And they go, oh, that's easy. It says in Micah that the baby, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be. Any other questions? Because we got stuff we want to do. And what I find so troubling is I would wish, I hope, that the chief priests and the scribes, right, if, if Herod looked at them and said, hey, these magi are here from the east. They've been traveling for two years. They're looking for the Messiah. They say they saw a star. They're connecting that with Numbers 24 and Isaiah 60. They saw the star. They say the Messiah is born. Where's that going to be? I would hope that the chief priests and the scribes would go out of our way. We're going to get there first. That the chief priests and the scribes would hop on their own camels or their own donkeys or whatever, you know, put on their sandals and run. That they would be anxious to see the Christ child themselves. But that's not what's described here. Neither Herod nor the chief priests and the scribes are anxious to get to Bethlehem. It's the foreigners from the east. It's the magi, the soothsayers, the fortune tellers. No, the people that were the closest to the scriptures, the ones who knew the prophecies the best, don't seem anxious at all to make his acquaintance. Why? Because they're more concerned with knowing things about the Messiah than knowing the Messiah. We fall into that trap as well sometimes. It's easy to sort of fall into the trap of knowing things about God rather rather than knowing him. Understanding the things the Bible says about God or about discipleship rather than being a disciple. No, they're inconvenienced. The king is inconvenienced. And to be honest, the magi are inconvenienced as well. But I will tell you that in my study of this text, I've been greatly inspired. I've been convicted, very challenged, because I see six things in the life of the magi that, despite the inconvenience, are a great representation of what it means to actually be a follower of God. The first thing, right out of the gate, is, is that their activity, right? They see a star and they go. God speaks to them and they get up and go. And this is no small endeavor. I mean, they pack up all their stuff and they leave and travel to go. They're active in their following of God. They're active in their response to God speaking to them. And the reason why I think that stands out to me first is that so often I feel like my followership, my discipleship of God feels so still. You know what I mean? It feels kind of stationary. Like I hear God speak. I I listen to great sermons or I study God's word. I sit in a small group. My wife and I will have conversations about the things of God and and I'll be inspired but not necessarily moved. So often my followership is a stationary followership. It's a still followership. Not so with the Magi. They see the star and they pack their bags. I wonder this morning, is your followership of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it active or is it still? Is, it, is there movement to it? You know, James very clearly says in James 1, let's not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. 
I think for many of us, when we think about God's word, we, we think it's interesting. We love it when someone brings a new insight. We like it to be insightful. We like it to be interesting. We don't necessarily like it to be moving. And I mean that literally, that it would move us to action. But can I tell you what? God has not given us his word for us to be interested in. He's given us his word to be moved by and transformed through. I love the fact that their followership is 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 demonstrated in activity. Not only that, the second thing I see in the text is that their followership has audacity to it. Audacity. And it's interesting, I, when I said I was going to use audacity as one of, my, one of my six things today, my wife goes, uh, I don't think people know what, you shouldn't use that. People don't know what audacity is. So I printed out the definition. Here's what it says. Audacity, the willingness to take bold risks. The willingness to take bold risks. Let me tell you what. The journey itself for these magi from the east to travel to some place they don't know, to head to a country they haven't been to, to go to a place they're not even sure where they're going to stop, that kind of a journey during this time period was a risk in itself. But they double down when they step into the court of Herod and they look at the sitting tyrant king and say, where is your replacement? That's risky, right? And not only that... We see their followership characterized by audacity and risk when at the end of the story, Herod has said to them, hey, after you see the baby, come back to me, right? Let's look at that. Matthew chapter two, the the chief priests and the scribes tell him in verse five, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. That's where he's getting his timeline. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship, right? Herod had no interest in worshiping the king. He only wanted to worship the king with his hands around the king's throat, right? We know that Herod wanted to murder him. And so we see that the wise men, the magi, they do not go back to the king. They defy the villainous, wicked, murderous king's order. The king said, come back to me after you find him. And they did not do that. There's risk at every turn. Risk followed by risk followed by risk. Can I ask you this this morning, church? When's the last time that your followership of the Lord Jesus involved risk of any kind? Because I would guess that for most of us, if you're like me, I like my followership of Jesus to be safe. I like it to be safe. I want to know in advance what it's going to look like and what it's going to cost and what it's going to take. I like to plot it out. And if I'm working really hard to serve Jesus this week, then I want to take it easy next week. I don't want a lot of risk. I don't want a lot of surprises. I certainly don't want to follow Jesus with audacity. I want to follow Jesus with security. I want to know that I can take care of myself and follow Jesus. But that's not what we see with these magi. No, there's activity, there's audacity, they're taking risks at every turn. Remember the, the psalm we read last week, Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light, of whom shall I be afraid? There's a confidence in the leadership of God. Not only do we see activity, not only do we see audacity, but we see liberty. Look at what it says in the text, in verses nine and 10. After listening to the king, they, that's the Magi, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Just as a side note, um, there are people who've tried to dismiss the supernatural in the story by saying, oh, no, th- there's just planets that aligned, or maybe it was Halley's Comet, which may have appeared during that time. Like, that's all these guys saw. Can I tell you this? 
What the text tells us is that the star they were following moved in front of them and rested over the house where Joseph and Mary were with the child Jesus. Haley's Comet doesn't do that. Planets in alignment do not do that. What we're seeing in the text is the supernatural marker, the indication of God, like a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud that leads his people. That's what the star is. It's not something you can understand through science. It's God at work. And it says, when they, when they see the star and it settles over the place where the child was, verse 10, when they saw the star, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like how many adjectives do we need, right? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You get the picture? I mean, what the author's saying is, when they found the child, there was big, happy, loud, noisy party time, people, right? Big, loud, noisy, party time people. That's what happened. Now, look, if there's just three magi, it's probably, you know, like, there was much rejoicing. You know? But if there's an entourage of 300, big, loud, party time Worship is a big deal. I love the fact that not only is there followership of Jesus, it's, there's activity and audacity, but there's liberty. What do I mean by that? I mean that there's freedom and they respond in a way that's appropriate to the situation. I feel like so often my worship of Christ is reserved, right? It, it's kind of subdued. There's not a liberty in it. I'm worried about what people are gonna think. I'm worried about the way I'm gonna look. I'm worried about you know, just the perception of other people. When is the last time that you thought about the incarnation of Christ or the death and resurrection of Christ or the eventual return of Christ and you felt like standing on your tiptoes and shouting to the world, huzzah, you know, like it just, when has it ever felt like that? I don't think it feels like that for us very often. I think our worship of God is very manageable. I think we go, oh, well, aren't you excited about the resurrection of Jesus? Aren't you excited about the incarnation? And we go, oh, no, I'm really excited. Can't you hear me singing these songs? I'm singing these church, I mean, I'm singing the ones I like, and I'm singing them if they put them in a key, I can sing them in, right? I'll sing, I'm, I'm excited, I'm as excited about the, you know, Jesus and all that stuff as the next guy, you know? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Okay, just get on to the next thing, right? I think our worship is way too subdued. And as we might say, oh no, I'm excited about the coming of Jesus. I'm excited about his resurrection. I'm excited about the gift of resurrection life. I don't know that I see liberty in the life of very many followers. I think most of the time what I see is, is a, a sort of just mellowness. And sometimes we, uh, we excuse that by saying, oh, I'm reverent. I'm re- reverent means unemotional. That's not true. It is absolutely possible to be reverent towards God and celebratory at the same time. I love the fact that their worship is big and happy and joyful and needs a lot of adjectives to describe it, right? It's cool. We see activity. We see audacity. We see liberty. And fourthly, I love their humility. I love their humility. They've been on this long journey. They've traveled all this way. And look at what happens next. It says in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. Look, this isn't, uh, it's, it's not, you know, the Magi coming in and going, hello, we are the Magi. We have traveled for two years. We're important people where we come from, and we have read in the scriptures that you also are important. And so look at us, a bunch of important people under the same roof. How wonderful. All of us important folks together, right? 
No, that's not the posture that they take. Are they important people? Yeah. Have they just seen something happen that never happens for magicians and enchanters and soothsayers? Yeah. Think about how discouraging it would be to be a magician or an enchanter or a soothsayer, like a fortune teller. You're constantly guessing and you're trying to tell people what you think they want to hear and you're trying to, you know, sort of build a reputation for yourself by making your best guess and every once in a while you accidentally get it right, right? That'd be a very discouraging profession. Now they have followed the signs of God, the prophecy of God, and they've showed up, the star is there, they open the door to the house, and there is Mary and the child. And yeah, they're celebrating with liberty, but they fall to their faces in humility. This isn't Pierce, right? This isn't the posture of a, a peer interaction. It's also not just appreciative adults, right? It isn't the Magi going, oh, you know, congratulations, we heard this baby's gonna be the king of the Jews. You must be very proud. Mary and Joseph, knuckle pound, right? Good job. It's not appreciative adults. It's not peers. It's worshipers. The Magi are worshipers. They fall to the ground before him. I think sometimes... We have a hard time with this. In the same way we have a hard time with other people wanting to be the king of our lives because we want to be the king, sometimes it's hard for us to humble ourselves because we're actually pretty proud of ourselves. I mean, we live in a great country and we have all these resources and look at what we've done and we have the grace of God that's given us resurrection life and look, look at how great our lives are. And so it's hard to bow down before someone else because we've been sort of telling ourselves for so long how great we are, not the magi. There's activity, there's audacity, there's liberty, there's humility. Fifthly, I want you to see there's generosity. It says also in 11, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Can I tell you just right out of the gate, these are terrible gifts for a baby, right? You can't, you can't give a baby myrrh. Myrrh, myrrh was a, like, a, like a waxy sort of a balm that they would use in embalming dead bodies, like preparing bodies for final rest. That's a terrible baby gift, Right? You give myrrh to a baby, he's going to immediately put it in his mouth. It's all kinds of trouble, right? These aren't good gifts for a baby. They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And much has been made of the gifts, right? Those people will say, oh, the, the gold is a gift fit for a king. And frankincense, well, that's the only kind of incense that was permitted to be used in the temple, in temple sacrifice and worship. That's the only kind of incense. So that's a gift that's fitting for a priest. And myrrh, it was used in the interment of bodies after death. That's a perfect gift for someone who will lay down his life as a sacrifice. The wise men, the magi, they must have known. King, priest, sacrifice. But can I tell you, I don't think they did. I don't think they were that smart. I don't think they could see that in the stars. And I certainly don't see it in Numbers 24 or Isaiah 60. I just think they brought expensive gifts. I think God used the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh as a type, as a picture to point ahead to a king and a priest and a sacrifice. But I don't think the Magi were in on it. I just think they gave this little king something expensive. Why? They gave him something expensive that he couldn't use and didn't need. You know, we talk around here all the time. When we talk about finances, we talk about the fact that God doesn't need our finances, right? And that seems like, a, like the thing a pastor's supposed to say. But the reality is that God doesn't need our money. God doesn't ever need our money. We cannot give to him something that he needs. There is not anything that you can bring to God that he needs. So why do we give to him? We give to God not because of what he needs. We give God things that we could otherwise have used and enjoyed. We sacrifice and give them to him, even though he doesn't need them, to demonstrate to the king that he is of more value to us than our stuff. 
Why do they bring golden frankincense and myrrh to a baby shower? They don't bring it because the baby needs it. They bring it because it costs them something. Because it costs them something. They give costly gifts to say, we don't care about these things. We care about you. We care about you. There's activity. There's audacity. There's liberty in their worship. There is humility and generosity. And the sixth and final thing I want you to see in the text is that there's consistency. Look at the very last verse we're studying today in verse 12. It says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, check this out. I think many of us, we sort of have this idea that like, oh, there's gonna be these moments where God's gonna call us, right? He's gonna call us and he's gonna lead us and we have to follow with activity. And we might be called to make a risk so there'll be some audacity and we'll worship him with liberty and we'll be humble before him and we'll give generously and then when that's done we're finished right it's done look at what we did I mean how many times have you talked to somebody that's like well I love Jesus and and I can prove it you know back in 2002 I went on a trip to Africa and all I ate was beans for two weeks or whatever you're like that's awesome that you took that trip to Africa in 2002 and you gave and sacrificed and worshiped and you followed, you took risks, but you did that 15 years ago. I think sometimes we have this idea that all we need to do is just have one big, victorious, generous, sacrificial, audacious moment and then we're done. And that isn't what it looks like to be a disciple. The reality is that the moment we finish, we've, the moment we finish one set of obedience, The moment we finish the one thing that God has called us to, he immediately calls us to continued obedience. The disciples are, or excuse me, the the magi are in the house with the child. They've given their gifts and it would be easy to think, yep, that's it. We did it. Let's go home. And God speaks to them in a dream and says, I want you to go a different way because of Herod, because he's wicked and they obey him still. They obey him still. There's this consistency to their worship. It's not just about one big show. It's about a life of following, a life of activity and audacity and liberty and humility and generosity and consistency. It's about an ongoing pursuit of obedience to God. I wrote here, the call for us is to courageously follow the light we have. Rejoice with big, happy joy where God reveals himself. Fall on our faces before him. Give him all we have and then follow him some more. Let me say it again. We courageously follow the light we have. We don't know everything, but we follow the light we have. We courageously follow the light we have, rejoice with big happy joy where God reveals himself, fall on our faces before him, give him all we have, and then follow him more. Was this journey for the the Magi, was it convenient? Was it fitting in with their activities and plans? Did it involve little trouble or effort? Was it situated so as to allow easy access? No, it wasn't convenient at all. Nothing about the Magi's journey was convenient. Following Jesus, being a Christ follower is not convenient. It's difficult. But can I tell you what is convenient and and why we would live an inconvenient life in service of this Jesus? Because what's incredibly convenient is the gift of resurrection life. I mean, just think about the definition of convenience. Fitting in well with a person's needs, activities, or plans. There is nothing that men and women need more than resurrection life. We are dead in our sin. So does resurrection life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, does it fit in with our needs? It meets our needs more fully than anything ever has. 
The second definition is involving little trouble or effort. Can I tell you that receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, being saved from sin and death, requires zero effort. You want to talk about convenient? It requires zero effort from you and I. It's a gift of God. And the last definition of convenient is situated so as to allow easy access. Well, there is no more easy access than that God came to us. He came unto us in the incarnation. And when we put our faith in him, when we receive that gift of resurrection life, his spirit dwells within us. I mean, you think the 7-Eleven across the street is convenient. The spirit of God is in us. Now, the gospel of Jesus is convenient. Not for him, but for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly convenient. And it's because of the convenience of the gospel that you and I would choose to live lives of activity and audacity and liberty and humility and generosity and consistency, even though it's inconvenient. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray. I pray that you would help us to take to heart all of these things. I pray this for me. I pray it for my family and my friends. I pray it for all of us in this church. I pray it for Christians around this world and around this country that all of us would think about what it means to follow you, to follow the light we know, to fall on our face before you, to celebrate with big, happy joy at who you are, to give you all we have, and then to follow you some more. Help us to be those kinds of people, I pray. Oh, we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you as we respond to the message for you just to allow this next song to sort of wash over you. Beautiful song that's going to be played. We'll put the lyrics up on the screen. But would you just sit for a second and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you as you respond to what His Word has said to us this morning.